Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Our text for today's message comes from the Gospel reading of John, as you heard a few moments ago. You may be seated. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, I know that 2021 was not very long ago, and it's possible that many of you would like to completely forget the whole year entirely. But if we could go back just in time a little bit, and I don't mean to go back in time to relive any of those moments that you want to forget. I mean to go back in time and revisit the story that we had heard previously right before Christmas. We'd heard in the Gospel of Luke the visit of Mary to Elizabeth when both of them were pregnant, and John the Baptist leaps for joy in Elizabeth's womb as Mary is carrying the Savior. And then we heard Mary's Magnificat, her song of confession for her child, the Savior that she was carrying. We then connected it to the song, Mary, Did You Know?, in order to address the questions that are posed in the song, to determine whether or not Mary knew all of those things about Jesus that are described in the song. Now, the reason I'm coming back to this is because in the gospel reading for today, we see that Mary is at the wedding at Cana, and Jesus is also there with his disciples. Now, we don't get to know whose wedding it is, but you can imagine that it was someone close to Mary, maybe even Jesus too, since, well, they're both invited, but also because Jesus' disciples were welcomed to come as well. I mean, we're used to getting like a plus one at a wedding, right? And Jesus gets a plus 12. And then we see one of the worst things that could happen happens. They run out of wine. Wine is a symbol of joy and hope and abundance in the Bible. So to run out of wine is taking the joy out of the celebration. On top of the fact that this is a big social faux pas, this is a big no-no. Now, I've been to plenty of weddings, maybe you have too, where, you know, there's an open bar, and sometimes the bar is closed, you know, during speeches. Well, here in Cana, the bar is closed permanently because there's no alcohol left. But it's okay because Mary is going to come to the rescue. And as I've read this story, I've been thinking about Mary's motivation for coming to Jesus once the wine runs out. It would lead to the idea that she's closely connected to this married couple because she inserts herself into solving the problem. The other option would be that Mary addresses Jesus in a manner that makes it seem like she knew that Jesus could fix the problem. A problem like a wedding feast running out of wine. So when you hear the lyrics of the song, Mary, did you know? Mary, did you know that your baby boy would one day walk on water? Would give sight to a blind man? Would calm the storm with his hand? We could add to that. Mary, did you know that your baby boy would change water into wine? Now when we talked about those specific miracles of Jesus, walking on water, calming the storm, healing the blind... We don't know that Mary knew the specifics of Jesus' greatness and power, but she did know that he was the Savior, the Son of God, and that he was special. So it makes sense that when Jesus and his disciples and Mary are all at the same wedding and the wine runs out, Mary goes to Jesus. Did she know that he would change water to wine? 
Well, maybe not. Because, you know, John doesn't record us that Mary whispers in Jesus' ear, you know, hey, do the water thing. What we have her saying is to Jesus, they have no wine. And then, of course, you can imagine maybe Mary staring at Jesus being like, this is where you do something. You know, what's, what's mo Mary's motivation for coming to Jesus? She believed that Jesus could do it. She went to the person who she knew could fix it. And obviously, we don't know too much about Jesus and his teenage life, his early 20s, and what their relationship was like. We don't know if he ever used any of his powers of God at home with his family. We can't fill in those blanks. And maybe Jesus never performed any miracle at home. I mean, after all, he does seem a little hesitant to do anything about the wine in this situation because he says, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, understand, Jesus is not disrespecting his mother by calling her woman. So don't get hung up on that. He calls plenty of women woman during his ministry. And Mary's request to Jesus is certainly more of a request as a disciple to Jesus type of a relationship because it's done in faith as the only one who can do something rather than a mother to a son as if it's somehow expected of him, like it's his own wedding. Because back in these days, it was the responsibility of the groom to take care of the wine, which is why when we later see the water turned into wine, the master of the feast goes to the bridegroom to talk about the wine situation. But before the miracle happens, Jesus' response to Mary was that his hour had not yet come. Now, that's a very unique phrase. So it's obviously referring to something specific. So what do you think he means? Well, let's go back to Mary's Magnificat. We know that she believed that the child she was carrying, who is now this grown man, was the Savior. She had faith in him as the Son of God, that he could do great things. So Mary coming to Jesus at the wedding is her coming to him in faith because he can do great things. What great things can he do? Well, Jesus seems to be hesitant because he's like, what does this have to do with me? Or we think that our response might be something like we'd say, why is this my problem? Of course, Jesus follows it up with, my hour has not yet come. And so if we're thinking about what Mary believed about Jesus, that he would be the Savior, we could reason that the hour Jesus is referring to would be a point in time when he is fully revealed as the Savior. Or as we hear about throughout the Bible, it's God showing us his glory. Now, the glory of God in the Old Testament was God manifesting himself to others. For Moses and the Israelites, after they escaped Egypt, God reveals himself as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And later, God manifests himself in the tabernacle, in the temple, in the most holy place. This is where the Ark of the Covenant was held, and that was known as God's footstool. And that's the place where God made his dwelling among the people. And that's why 
they only went into the most holy place once a year on the Day of Atonement. And they would make special sacrifices for their sins. Because as sinful human beings, you didn't just come into the perfect presence of God whenever you wanted. Now, fast forward to John chapter 1, verse 14, which says that the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. In other words, God tabernacled among his people in the flesh. Jesus, God in flesh. He made his presence among the people. The glory of God was revealed in Jesus, and God's glory is fully revealed that hour by Christ when he goes to the cross. And now the new universal day of atonement, if you will, is the day when Christ atoned for the sins of the whole world, for your sins and mine. And that hour was not here yet. And Jesus knew that. And his ministry was only getting started at this point. I mean, the time for his death was not here yet. There was still more time left until that took place, more miracles to perform. But in order to have more miracles, you actually have to have the first miracle. And so here we are at Mary again, who comes to Jesus in faith, and Jesus might seem a little unwilling. And what's Mary's response to Jesus' answer? She tells the servants, do whatever he tells you. Either she wasn't taking no for an answer, or she truly believed that Jesus could and would do something about the wine situation. And Jesus does. The water is changed to wine. The servants knew that they poured water into the jars and that it came out as wine. The wedding is saved. And as John concludes this miracle story, he tells us that this is the first of Jesus' signs, the first miracle that does what? Manifested his glory. This is Jesus showing himself to be God in flesh. And as a result of this, the, the faith of the disciples is strengthened. And the faith that, that I think we can say Mary was already strong in. And so, her motivations for coming to Jesus were out of faith in him as the Savior, as God in flesh, who can do great things. And maybe she fully, fully didn't realize the great things that he could do, but she still believed that Jesus was the answer. So, what are your motivations for being here? Being present in person, being present online. Why are you here? Why do you worship? Now, I won't dig into too much into your actual answers because here's the thing we're all sinners. We all fall short of God's glory. We fall short of perfection. That means that often we have the wrong motivations when it comes to things, especially when it comes to God. We are failures. And so some of the ways that we fail are, well, we make worship only about us and about the praise and thanksgiving that we are giving to God. 
as if he needs our praise and thanksgiving. And so the direction that we view worship is from us to God. We also make worship into this emotional connection with God. We base it on our feelings. And so sometimes we're just not feeling the music. Sometimes we're, we're not feeling the message. And that gives us permission to, to tune out, to not pay attention, to, you know, to pull our phones out and do other things rather than listen to the word of God. Or maybe, you know, we have, we have conversations with our neighbor during the service because, well, that's clearly more important than hearing the word of God proclaimed. Maybe we get distracted by the things of this world. You know, what we're going to have for dinner. What, what items we need on our grocery list, list the next time we go shopping. Did I lock my car door? Do I have enough wine in my house right now or am I going to end up like the wedding at Cana? How long has he been preaching for? And we get wrapped up in these thoughts and, well, we've just missed what was just said. Now let me say this again. We are all sinners. And we all mess up daily. And we are not perfect in worship. And we are not perfect with others. And we are not perfect in our daily lives. And as a result of our sin, what we deserve is death. It's punishment. It's condemnation. It's hell. It is forever being separated from the God that we think actually needs us. God doesn't need us. And worship, it's not about us. Worship is about God. It begins and it ends with God. He is the foundation and the source. It is God-centered. More specifically, Christ-centered. God gives gifts and we receive them. The direction is from God to us. God speaks. We listen. He is the content. That's why we also use the word service or divine service. Because God serves us in worship. He gives us his word and sacraments. He washes us in the waters of baptism. He calls us by name, and he marks us as ones redeemed by him. He forgives us our sins in the absolution. He gives us his body and blood to eat and drink in his supper. He gives us his word. His word that proclaims the death of Jesus Christ for all of our sins, for all of our failures, for all of our selfishness, for all of the times that we make ourselves the center of worship. Jesus takes our punishment and our death and our hell, and he nails them to the cross. And he dies for all of us because he loves us. Not because he needs us but because he wants us. And in his death, that curtain in the temple, separating the people of God from that most holy place where God dwelled, is torn in two, giving us direct access into God's presence. 
And Jesus rises from the dead, proving that he has defeated sin, death, and the devil once and for all, and giving us the promise that all who believe in him will have eternal life. And that eternal life, that involves another wedding feast. And it's the feast of the Lamb in his kingdom. And this time Jesus is the bridegroom. We are the bride of Christ. And he is responsible for taking care of the feast. And the Lord's Supper that we celebrate is a foretaste of the feast to come. That never-ending feast that is to come in heaven. And God's word also does what it says it does. God's word gives faith. Faith comes as a gift from God by the power of the Holy Spirit, and it's not by our own doing or action. Yes, worship does involve a response, a praise response of thanksgiving. Our response is a response of faith and devotion. Only after we have received the word and the gifts that God offers do we respond in thanksgiving and praise by faith but it is God's actions through us, not anything of our own doing. He is the mover and the doer in us. And then he blesses us all to go out and live our calling where his gifts come to fruition in our lives. Thus, worship is vital to the life of a Christian. It is not optional. But Satan the defeated one? Well, he doesn't quit so easily. And he wants you to do without worship. He wants you to believe that it's not essential. He wants you to believe that you don't have to listen to the word of God, let alone some flawed, sinful, individual preacher like me. He wants you to tune out, to get distracted, maybe have a little snooze during the sermon. He doesn't want you to feel the service. He wants you to think that you don't need to be here in person because, well, there's nothing that you can't get at home. Which isn't true. I mean, just one of those things is the Lord's Supper. You can't have it in your own home on your own. Speaking of the Lord's Supper, Satan wants you to think that you don't have to have the Lord's Supper every time it's offered because, well, for those of you who have been around long enough, our tradition is once a month, or it was before the pandemic started. So if it's offered more than once a month, well, you know, I don't actually need it. So I can just skip it this time. So here's a real simple conversation that you can have regarding the Lord's Supper. Do I sin daily? Yes. Do I need forgiveness daily? Yes. Is the forgiveness of sins offered in the Lord's Supper? Yes. Should I receive the Lord's Supper every time it's offered? The answer is yes. Now remember, Satan wants you to do anything, wants to do anything possible to lead you away from Christ and to lead you away from Christ's gifts. And if the message that you hear is that you don't need any part of this service, then Satan has accomplished something. Because if he can start with something small, well, eventually he'll work his way on to bigger things, ultimately to destroy your faith in Christ. 
And understand this, he is not going to stop. Not until Christ's glory is fully realized to the whole earth and he comes again. Until then, Satan will attack and attack and attack in any way possible. Thanks be to God that Jesus has already won the victory for us and has given us his Holy Spirit to help us in this fight. Our sinful nature is hard to fight against. The world with all its temptations is hard to fight against. Satan is hard to fight against. But God who is in us by faith is greater than all that oppose him. And because he has overcome them, we have overcome. And so today, as we worship, we are reminded of God coming to us in the flesh. God changing water into wine as his first sign. God working his greatest miracle of all, that being his resurrection from the dead. And today, God comes again to us with his body and blood in the bread and the wine for the forgiveness of our sins, for the strengthening of our faith, and for our salvation. God with us, God to us, and God for us. Amen. And now the peace of God which passes all understanding. Guard your hearts and minds in Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen.